being disabled like this is really quite difficult, but it's not actually the end of the world. Um, I have really rich relationships. I'm just as valuable as I was before. I have a purpose now, just the same as I did when I had an able body. So it, it takes the pressure off. Like I don't have to pin my worth or my quality of life on what my body can or can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe I will recover one day and I'm working towards it, but it doesn't matter like if I can't find my way there because I'm, I'm valuable regardless and my life can be valuable regardless. My very first conversation with Lisa Spring was about the Airbnb that she hosted and won an award for the most hospitable Airbnb in the province of Manitoba. When I was talking with Lisa, I learned that she has chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, I don't know much about it and thought I need to have a conversation with her so I can learn what it is and learn what life is like living with it. Lisa is real and shares exactly what life looks like for her. The struggles, the highs, the lows, how she got through the grieving process, how her kids are dealing with it, and how she is moving forward living with this diagnosis. I learned so much about chronic fatigue syndrome, what it's really called, and learned so much about Lisa. I am so thankful I got to have this conversation with her. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me and being willing to share your experience with us. Yeah, thanks, Carly. It's um, Yeah, it's good to talk about it. I think it's good to get the information out there. So I learned just a minuscule amount. And so I went straight to the experts at the Mayo Clinic because when you type it into Google, it anything can come up. But mm-hmm. it seems to me that chronic fatigue syndrome is really unexplained. And the characteristics and symptoms are so varied that I I don't even know where to begin. But symptoms like fatigue, memory issues, sore throat headaches, joint pain. Help explain to us what chronic fatigue syndrome has been like for you and your journey with it. Yeah. Um, okay. So <laughs> my journey with it, um, at the time it felt like it happened really overnight, but when I look back, I can see that the onset of my illness was kind of building over a few weeks. So I became ill in 2019. Um, I just got a really mild cold in September. It wasn't a big deal, uh, but the cough never really went away. Um, I traveled for work in October, and I got this really weird stomach flu kind of type of deal um, that just, yeah, it was just super weird feeling, you know, for about 12 hours or so. Hmm. Um, and I just felt really run down after that, and my cough started increasing. By the end of October, the cough was so awful I could hardly speak and I was having trouble making it through the day and my other symptoms were increasing, like really weird ones that I'd never experienced. So I think um, Halloween, uh, October 31st in 2019 was the first time I went to the doctor for it. Um, It turns out the cough is, like not everybody gets the cough, but it's common enough to show up a bit in the literature. But um, for me, that was kind of the main thing that started it but it just kept getting worse after that a couple of days after I saw the doctor I couldn't get out of bed at all I was completely bed bound um, and just like really crazy severe flu and respiratory symptoms um, there was one 
night that I was pretty sure I was going to suffocate. Like I just couldn't breathe, but I couldn't even call for help. Like, um, yeah, I just couldn't do a thing. And, um, so I kept going to the doctors. I tried going back to work twice over a period of a couple of months, but I kept collapsing and ended up in the emergency. So I officially went on sick leave in January of 2020. Um, at one point during that time, I counted 90 different symptoms. No, um, sorry, 90? Nine zero? Yeah, nine zero. Oh my yeah. goodness, Lisa. Yeah, it was, it was really scary. It, like, I felt like, I felt like my cells were disintegrating, like my body was disintegrating at the cellular mm-hmm. level, like that's kind of the best way to say it. And then as I learned more about the illness and, you know, it, it, it is an illness that, that affects the cells. So it really makes sense that I felt that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the doctors, like nothing really showed up on the test. So I saw multiple doctors. I didn't have a family doctor at the time. We were on the wait list. So I just saw a ton of different doctors. I saw an osteopath. I went to acupuncture. I went to a naturopath. I saw a respirologist. Um, but I, I had to go into my appointments with everything I needed to say in writing because I wasn't well enough to speak. Really? Um, oh. Yeah. And um, so I, I did months of testing, like probably about eight months of testing, um, CT scans, tons of x-rays, <laughs> blood work. Uh, I got a bronchoscopy, or I think I'm saying that word wrong, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, and I got a pulmonary function test, and most of the tests just ruled things out. And this is really common um, for for folks like me, where nothing, there's no diagnostic marker that a regular kind of clinic test can can measure. Right. Um, but the PFT, the pulmonary function test, showed severe impairment of my oxygen metabolism. So the air was getting, the oxygen was getting into my body, but my cells weren't taking it up. And that led me to the ME-CFS um, diagnosis. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about, about the title, um, uh, ME-CFS, a little bit later, too. Okay. Um, so it was probably July or August of 2020 when we reached the diagnosis, um, and, and the doctors confirmed it. So that was um, almost a full year. Yeah, just about, right. yeah. And that... The first year and a half, so up until my diagnosis and then a a little ways after as well, I spent about 10 months of that time intermittently um, being totally incapacitated. Like, I wasn't well enough to eat solid food or use the bathroom alone or even, like, lift my water bottle. I had to speak one word at a time in a whisper. (laughs) I'm so much better now. Even though I'm quite disabled, I'm a lot better now. Um, Wow. Yeah, so after I went on medical leave, um, you know, over that time, slowly realizing I wasn't going to get back to my pre-illness life anytime soon, and then reaching that MECFS diagnosis, I, you know, went just went through a really deep grieving process, which is really important to do, mm-hmm. um, and I had to focus on working through those stages really purposefully in order to, you know, in order for it not to totally derail the rest of my life you know you have to come to terms with it somehow um yeah so that was a that's a big part of the experience with the illness as well so what did what you said you went through a grieving process what did that look like 
kind of, I don't want to cookie cutter it, right? But it, yeah. it's kind of the same yeah. same thing as a loss of, of, a, totally. of a person you yeah. love. Yeah, exactly the same thing. I mean, it's not, it. people talk about the grieving process as a linear, you know, it's yeah. easy to talk about it in a linear way and it isn't <laughs> very linear. But those stages felt really very real to me. And, you know, the denial I, you know, I'm not really that sick. I can just push through. I, I'm not going to let it, you know, I didn't want to let the, the symptoms control me, you know, right. so I try to push through, but then I get, you know, not be able to get out of bed or, you know, eat or talk for months afterwards and stuff like that. So that, that denial part and then, um, the bargaining too, <laughs> just like, oh, if I, I'll, I'll be good. I'll rest after this, you know, if I could just do this or, or if I can just keep this part of my pre-illness life, I'll, I'll, I'll let go of this, but not this, you know, like just yeah. trying to cope with like, how, how can I negotiate? I want to keep some things, you know, and then eventually just that, that sadness and, and being really, you know, it, I, I didn't feel like it was depression because I knew it had, it had a purpose, but but yeah, deep sadness. And there, there was a period of about three or four months where I just had to focus on letting myself, yeah, grieve and yeah, just cry it out. And I spent, I actually, I made two playlists during that, that really deep grieving process where yeah. one, I, I picked the saddest songs <laughs> I could possibly find <laughs> and I put them all in one playlist and I would listen to it and bawl my eyes out and then after that was over I'd put on a playlist of like really calm kind of soothing um music and I'd listen to that and then I was done and then I'd go on with my day and so I kind of did that like really intentionally for a little while knowing that it was kind of the answer to finding my way through and kind of living yeah just learning to live with it well and you were allowing yourself to like feel those emotions, like experience them instead of just, hey, yeah. I'm sad right now, but now let's just be sad. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really essential for any kind of loss, but especially one that, you know, I the, I tell people always the two things that I have from my pre-illness life are, you know, my kids, my family, and a roof over my head, which are really important. Um, you know, yeah. and for some people, they lose those things too when they get sick with this illness. But for me, I got to keep those things um, but everything else is gone. So, and it doesn't mean that I have nothing. I there's right. a lot more that that yeah we could we'll we'll get there yet yeah. <laughs> about what I have in my life that that makes every that makes life um, rich still. But yeah, without grieving the loss, you can't get to the the next good stuff. Right, and so. You've lived with an official diagnosis for about a year now, but you had a whole year, basically, of unknown. Yeah, the unknown was really scary. It helped a lot just with my psychological, like, just with my feelings around around coping with my symptoms once I had a diagnosis, because I've never felt anything like it. Like, like it, sometimes I get this image of, of you know, someone's through... I'm riding a bike and someone threw a stick through my spokes and I just hmm. catapulted into the ground, you know, like yeah. it's just such an intense um, kind of symptom that it was really scary at the beginning, but having a diagnosis really helped a lot. So uh, because you just can make sense of it and you, you can start to learn a little bit here and there and, 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 you know, once things make sense, then they're, they're not scary anymore. Yeah. 
Oh, so yeah, so kind of like educating yourself, can you educate yourself out of the scariness? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. And the thing with, with MECFS is like the the official stats are 5% recovery, so 5% of people who have it recover. And that's a scary yeah. That's a scary number. Um, I think anecdotally we're we're inching more. More people are recovering now because we have a better understanding of neurobiology and and chronic illness and things like that. So, um, uh, but even knowing that not that many people recover, I also know that I'm not going to die from it. So, you know, very few people um, get to the point where they die from it. Um, so that also kind of takes the pressure off a little bit where there there's not like a, a clock ticking for me right right now so i can really just focus on on taking the time i need to learn about it right and i i know you are busy quote unquote you <laughs> you run an airbnb and uh, i follow you and mm-hmm. um i know when you are making comments on things you will say um Here's the picture, and then you describe it a little bit, but you 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 make the statement of saying, because of my ME slash CFS, this is all I'm going to type today. What 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 does ME CFS mean? Yeah, so many people are familiar with the term chronic fatigue syndromes with CFS. Mm-hmm. That name is actually controversial because. CFS has been misused in research trials Mm. to include people who have fatigue for reasons other than the clinical definition of my illness. Um, So that's led to some pretty serious mistreatment of us as a patient group, right? So if you do a trial on somebody who has fatigue for a totally different reason, the outcome's going to be different. And so the recommendations, the treatment recommendations aren't going to fit our patient group. Okay. So some people still use CFS, and that's fine. I'm not offended. You can <laughs> totally fine with me. But uh, I um, I identify more with the term myalgic encephalomyelitis, so ME. Uh, that's the term most used in Canada and most places around the world. Okay. Um, that's a mouthful. So, yeah, myalgic encephalomyelitis refers to um, pain and inflammation of the nervous system. So the World Health Organization classifies ME as a neurological disease. Um, from what I understand, the nervous system and the immune system seem to be at the core of the symptoms of, and, and they, it's, there's a cascading effect. They affect, you know, every other body system, basically, you know, right. energy and oxygen, metabolism, vascular, digestive, lymphatic system, like they all kind of, <laughs> um, yeah. they all kind of take their cue from the illness and in, in the, in the neurological and immune systems. Wow. Um, researchers can measure inflammation of the brain in ME patients, which I find super fascinating. They can also measure malfunctions at the cellular level, like deformed mitochondria, or there's problems with the methylation process. Um, but yeah, they're all impossible to detect through regular testing at hospitals or clinics. So it's really tough for, for patients generally to get a diagnosis. And so even I, I had to wait maybe, I guess, 10 months or so to find a diagnosis. But a lot of people wait years and years before before getting one. So if we're going to compare, <laughs> you were fortunate that you came to this diagnosis as quickly as you did. Yeah, yeah, and and it really was like my doctors totally confirmed the diagnosis, but I brought it to them because I would take I I made sure to get copies of all my blood work like every 
every test, like all the CT scans, all yeah. the x-rays, everything. And I would just plug like key phrases into the internet. <laughs> and, uh, and that's kind of what brought me to MECFS. It's not very well known in, in, in our medical system. So most doctors aren't, aren't familiar with it. Wow. Well, Dr. Google helped you out a little bit here, hey? Yeah. And of course, I wouldn't say like, I wouldn't diagnose myself, no. you know, totally through the internet, but it's a great resource. And, and I've, I've been lucky to be supported by healthcare providers who are open to, you know, all kinds of information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the cardinal symptom of ME is called post-exertional malaise um, or PEM. We just call it a crash. I'm having a crash as, okay. as you know, as patients. Um, PEM is a flare of symptoms or the appearance of new symptoms after, um, after exertion. So you could have physical exertion or cognitive or maybe even just a sensory overload that overloads your brain processing. And then, and then it, the, the crash symptoms kind of build. Often they build over a period of time, so the symptoms might not even occur for a day, you know, and then they kind of build over time. And so for me, if I get a crash, I'll start feeling sick the next day. Well, there's a few kinds of crashes, but the, mostly if I kind of overexert myself a little bit, then I'll start feeling sicker the next day and it'll build till about three, day three to five, I feel really, really bad, and then it kind of subsides over maybe a week or so. Okay, so define exertion for you. Yeah, so um, for me, so my, my cells have the capacity to make about 15% of the energy of a healthy person. So the ATP energy at the cellular level, my, my cells are malformed and can't make that energy properly. So anytime I go over that 15% of a healthy person's energy, that will trigger a crash. Um, uh, so reading too long, I, I, can't, I used to not be able to read at all. Like reading one word would give me a crash. Now I can read a couple of paragraphs at a time before I crash. So I tend to, I have to time myself when I'm, you know, looking on the internet or reading my emails or whatever to make sure that I don't do too much at a time. Um, any repetitive movement will cause a crash. Like it just burns through my energy really fast. So like even I can pet my dog now a little bit, but I can't do it too much. <laughs> I can't wash my hair. Um, because that would cause a crash. Um, you have yeah. to be extremely self-aware, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually kind of one of the things that I find, like if I take a different perspective on it, it if I look at it as an opportunity to get my to get to know myself better, you know, then it, it, I can turn it into a challenge rather than a limitation. Um <laughs> Yeah, what one day I'll be well, and and I'll have these amazing like superpower like <laughs> self awareness abilities. <laughs> wow, I um, wow, yeah, Lisa, I'm sitting here going, I two things I'm going in my head. I'm going, Lisa is amazing, and uh, also I can't believe 15 minutes of reading could wipe you out for three to five days. Yeah, Lisa, I yeah, wow. So the cognitive exertion, like physical exertion, if I overdo it physically, that'll 
that'll do, like, then I'll have a delayed reaction onset of symptoms. Okay. With cognitive exertion, it's, like, immediate. Like, I'll immediately get a headache, and we call it cold hanger pain, a certain kind of pattern of pain in the neck and shoulders and head. And, um, yeah, so I, it's a bit easier to catch myself, actually, with cognitive exertion because right. I start feeling it right away, and then I can stop right away. <laughs> uh, and then there's also a certain kind of crash where, if I really overdo it, like I totally way overdo it, then it'll happen immediately and I get the shakes and I get, get like sick right away. But yeah, yeah, learning these, like I'm still, I've got it pretty much under control now where I can be mostly stable. Um, and that's a good thing because you, in order to increase my energy envelope, I really have to be stable. If I'm overdoing it, I'll never get better. Um so, so patience. Yeah, it feels good to know that I have a bit of a handle on that now. For sure you do, yeah. So I'm going to say, you, if you weren't one before, you are now becoming a patient person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I often look back over, like, even the five years before I got ill, and I'm really grateful for some of the life lessons I learned at the time because I think it would be a lot harder to to go through this without, yeah, without having a, a little bit of of those life lessons under my belt. Mm-hmm. And yeah, patience is one of them. And, and that self-awareness too. I think I really grew in my self-awareness, you know, in my mid to late 30s. And I'm grateful that I can rely on that now. Wow. So, Lisa, what does a typical day look like for you then? If you're having to, is it fairly structured? Like yeah. Yeah, it's totally structured. I can't do spontaneous things very well. <laughs> if I if something spontaneous happens, then I'm sick for sure afterwards. Um, so, yeah, um, I try to schedule in enough, like, stuff that has to get done, but then also things that make my life better, you know, and make my life more rich. Okay, so what is that? Because one of my questions was going to be to you, what do you do for fun? What what brings richness to your life? When, yeah. from my perspective, it seems kind of limited within those parameters you've been sharing. Yeah, so, okay. Uh, so a typical day for me, I spend my days either totally bed-bound or in my reclining power wheelchair. Okay. Um, as soon as I wake up, unless I sleep in, but... Uh, as soon as I wake up, I try to do brain training. So there, it's I do these thought exercises that can help my brain rewire chronic pain signals. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something that I've learned that two things have to happen t- in order for me to potentially find recovery. One is to reduce the the, the trigger, the physical triggers on my body, on the the systems that aren't working in my body, and to reduce those triggers way way low. Um, and then the other thing is this brain training where um, uh, we can use the concept of neuroplasticity, like our brains are always learning and always changing. Mm-hmm. And you can train your conscious mind um, to help your your subconscious mind kind of kickstart that healing process. So I do brain training kind of throughout the day, but I try to start my day with it. Mm-hmm. Um I I check my health watch. I I wear a Garmin watch that tracks my heart rate and heart rate variability and a bunch of like health related kind of um, things. And I check my health watch in the morning um, and this helps me anticipate how much I'll be able to do during the day. 
um, I do everything by my heart rate. It's a really effective way for the body to communicate with us. Um, and so if my heart rate is high, then I do a lot less. Okay. Um, and then after that, I have two teenagers and they come say hi to me in the morning. Uh, and I kind of keep them company for my room while they get ready for school. Um, they, they are the big, the most fun in my life. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're awesome kids. We laugh a lot and they're super interesting and they have, you know, great opinions on the world and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So they, yeah, I, they're, they're my favorite part of the day. I can um, see why. Yep. After they go to school, I take a bunch of supplements. I do, I have a red infrared light therapy device. So I, mm. I use that and that helps um, my energy production just a little bit. Um, uh, it helps with some of my symptoms too. Like it really takes down the fevers that I get and things like that. And I just got this sound wave therapy device, which is really cool. I'm, I've just tried it out for maybe a week or so. And I found that, I find that helpful too. Um, then after that, I'm in the family managed care program through home care. So I have two really amazing caregivers who come, who alternate days and come, they come take care of me every weekday. Okay. They help me wash up and bring me food and do my laundry and they make all my meals and stuff. So they come and keep me company during the days. Um, and they're, it's enjoyable to have them around. It's just, yeah, good. Companionship. Good, comfortable kind yeah. of vibe in the house. Yeah, and then I take several scheduled rests throughout the day where I, I'll put on a blackout eye mask and shut out all stimulation and just focus on my breath. Sometimes I'll listen to a meditation or, like, music, but sometimes I just need quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I try to save as much energy as I can for when my kids come home so we can hang out and I can help them with homework if they need or, you know, we have my room set up kind of like a multi-purpose room, so okay. there's space for everyone to come and hang out here so they'll eat their dinner with me and do their homework here and we watch tv together we we watch a lot of comedies yeah yeah so I can't watch anything with suspense or like violence or you know my my nervous system can't handle it so yeah comedies is the way to go (laughs) or you know even sometimes I'll be too tired to watch something new but I can put on an old show so we've watched Modern Family over a bunch of times and (laughs) you know we just rewatch the same things and you know quote lines or whatever (laughs) which is part of Um, the fun yeah it is it's really fun (laughs) and that helps because I don't have to concentrate too hard on it which you know drains my energy but we can still enjoy our time together yeah. Um, on occasion, I can play cards, like short a short game, or sometimes they play cards and I just hang out. Okay. Um, and we goof around. Yeah. And I I get together with friends, um, maybe a couple times a month, probably usually virtually. Um, yeah, the pandemic has actually been really helpful for me. So I got sick about six months before the pandemic hit. Right. And I found that I was a lot less isolated after the pandemic hit because everybody was socializing on their devices and I, and I could do that in my room. Yeah. Like from my room. So yeah, I found actually, um, that's been a blessing in disguise for me personally. I bet, right? We've all had to learn to adjust to that and it hasn't been a bad thing. And so it's good to hear a positive perspective on it. Yeah. From someone, right? 
Um, I, how have your kids managed through your diagnosis? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but right. I'll, I'll try to... What have you seen as a mom? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they've done amazingly well as far as like... Uh, I mean, at the beginning, it was scary not knowing, but then as soon as we kind of knew what was happening and we all knew I wasn't dying, you know, then we could kind of get around to figuring out what what life is like. And we have, like, a sense of humor is really important. Mm -hmm. So we just have, we joke a lot. (laughs) And, you know, lots of really (laughs) kind of, I don't know, stuff that might seem inappropriate if if you don't know us, but that's been really important for, for us to keep yeah, just to keep good spirits and, you know, poke fun at life a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. The hardest thing for my kids has been the pandemic. So for yeah. me, I found the pandemic has made my life a bit easier because, um, yeah, because more more stuff is online. And, and right. But for my kids, it's made it a lot harder because they had to do online school. Um, they had to do school from home uh, yeah. last year completely because I'm I'm at high risk for COVID complications. Right. Um if, you know, I'm not quite sure how my body would handle getting COVID, but most definitely I would have a, a, a flare of, of my ME. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I can't afford to lose a lot more um, functionality. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, my kids have been really isolated. So I, I, I feel, yeah, I feel really protective of, of yeah. them or, you know, I want to, yeah. Um, yeah, I want to honor that sacrifice that they made mm-hmm. um, yeah but they've been troopers you know they they have the run of the house they, <laughs> they have to keep it clean and <laughs> I mean home care helps now uh, with with the kitchen and stuff like that but uh, but they have a lot of responsibility and they've had to take care of me when during some really scary times when I was like passing out on the floor and stuff like that and and uh, yeah they've they've handled it really really well well, they've probably had to grow up a little faster than other kids their age in some aspects. Yeah, in some ways they have as far as like responsibilities at home and yeah. having to yeah, having to take responsibility for stuff that normally a parent would go would, would be able to go alongside with them. They've had to learn things the hard way. But then there's other things too that they haven't been able to experience. They haven't been able to experience as much independence as other mm. teenagers would and things like that. Mm-hmm. So those are things that uh, we'll have to figure out other ways to to allow them to have those those good kid experiences as we go. Right, but they've had the benefit of watching you walk through something like this, and are well, you know they're watching you and they're learning from you. And as I sit here yeah. and and learn from you as well, I'm going. Those kids are in a fortunate spot. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's harder for them to realize that yeah. now because, you know, especially these teenagers, we all know with the pandemic how hard isolation is on kids and for them yeah. it's been quite quite deep and so that's been tough on them. But I know seeing from outside and knowing knowing what life is going to, you know, what life has in store for them after this that I just see them being, having such a depth of mm-hmm. capacity to kind of handle whatever life is going to throw at us or throw yeah. at them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So Lisa, what do you wish people knew about ME slash CFS? I don't know how to say it mm. in the short version. Yeah. But. <laughs> um, so 
Many MECFS sufferers have a really hard time convincing their family and friends how sick they are, or even their doctors, because all the evidence is at the neurological or that cellular level. It's hard to see the physical evidence of the illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so luckily for me, I have a really supportive family and community, but for a lot of folks, they really struggle with that, with a lot of blame or shame around devastating but it looks seems invisible yeah um and yeah and the treatments for me often seem the opposite of most other illnesses right like no exercise or you know you really have to stay within your energy envelope Mm -hmm. Um, these weird dietary restrictions medications you know people react poorly to a lot of medications that that would help someone else's symptoms um so the biggest thing is really how important it is to listen to the person suffering and believe what's happening for them, even if you don't fully understand it. I would say that to someone, like, I needed to hear that too, because I didn't believe what was happening to me either. I kept thinking, well, I'm fine, I'm healthy, I'm going to be fine, you know, and I I tried to ignore a lot of things that were happening to me at the beginning. But um, you you don't have to fully understand something for it to be real, you know. (laughs) Right. I think the other thing is you can't really tell how sick someone is just by seeing them one day because the severity of this fluctuates a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I used to try and go out of the house more. I thought if I just push through the symptoms, I can still enjoy like a little bit more of an able-bodied life, you know, and I could do it one day and people would be like, oh, you look so good. And But then for weeks at a time or months at a time afterwards, sometimes I wouldn't even be able to speak. So... Um, And these kinds of ups and downs can really lead to severe worsening of the condition. And sometimes I think if I knew this earlier, I wouldn't be as disabled as I am now. So, um, yeah, Hmm. I would would want people to know, like, look for that stability. Don't look for as much as you can do. Look for stability. Right. Okay, that's actually really good. So say there was someone who, you know, recently got a diagnosis. What kind of advice would you give to them? Mm. Yeah, well, pace yourself. Hmm. Um, Get a continuous heart rate monitor of some kind, like even just a cheap chest strap that runners use to to, um, monitor their heart rate and figure out where your safe heart rate thresholds are. Uh, That is the most important thing. Once I started getting a using a heart rate monitor, I really found I had a lot more ability to to anticipate my crashes and manage things. So I'd say do that right away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I also um, get supports. Like we have so many supports in our healthcare system. So I waited until this summer after almost two years to apply for home care because we just kept thinking I'd get better, you know. Yeah. But it was actually extremely difficult for my family and friends to take care of me during that time because yeah I just needed constant care so get home care get a tub lift get a mobility aid get a scooter or a power wheelchair you know I my wheelchair is my freedom you know Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing to have a device like that it it really opens up a lot of possibility Um, and there's the Manitoba wheelchair program that can help people who can't afford one um the other thing is to educate yourself, um, like slowly within your energy limits. Don't push it too much, but there's a lot of really great support online. Um, so uh, that some sites where I found really good information is um, 
ME Action. Um, and then there's a couple of patient forums. One is called Phoenix Rising. The other is called Health Rising. They have amazing information. Like, you could just talk to people with MECFS from around the world, and I found mm-hmm. that transformative for the way I manage the illness. Well, I bet, because um, you're hearing how other people dealt with are dealing with it. Yeah. Hmm, yeah, and there's just so much information to wade through. It's like it's like when you get diagnosed with MECFS, it's like you're thrown into a microbiology class at the university <laughs> level, you know. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> this is all about how cells interact with each other and what are cofactors and, like, all this stuff that you know, I never would have learned. <laughs> right, right. Um, and it's really confusing, and and it can make a huge difference, too, in knowing what you know or what you don't know when you try new interventions because the MECFS body tends to react very strongly to new things, so you can make yourself a lot sicker by trying something new without fully understanding it. Um, there is, oh, there's a uh, MEpedia, so like a, it's like Wikipedia for ME. Mm. <laughs> That's oh, all wow. mine. Um, we also have a local ME fibromyalgia action chapter here in Manitoba, so I found some really great connections with folks in Manitoba um, who have the diagnosis too. Um, there's a there's a Canadian consensus diagnostic tool for ME, and also an international one where you have a bunch of doctors got together and agreed on you know what are the what are the diagnostic um, markers for ME. So you can find them if you search um, the site ME org. So I'd really encourage folks to start there. Hmm. I yeah. like that it's a bunch of them together came up with the with the results, right? That's Yeah. It's yeah, it's one. really it has to be a multidisciplinary um, approach because um MECFS affects so many of the body systems, so you can't you can't know the illness just from one system. So that's why yeah, there's there's a lot of really really fascinating collaboration, like scientific and research collaboration that's happening around the world. It's really interesting and, and encouraging to see people working together like that. And, you know, so um, the MECFS world has seen a lot of, um, like, an increase with with COVID. So people with long COVID, a lot of them will go on to develop MECFS. Um, so it's helped to give us a little bit more um awareness in the world and more funding is going towards research now too with all these long COVID folks who are who are becoming part of our community. Wow. That's a sobering thought as well. Yeah, yeah. Um I read the Mayo Clinic recently put out a paper saying that based on their preliminary research in the States, they expect about ten percent of um of people with who got COVID to develop. Um, okay, oh, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Okay, so take, take the stats with a grain of salt. <laughs> I think it was 10% of people with uh, with COVID will get long COVID, and about 50% of those folks will go on to develop MECFS, something like that. Wow. Yeah. So there could be more people joining that community. Yeah. Yeah, but I also think we're kind of at this point where the momentum is building and people yeah. are learning, yeah, understanding the the neurobiology kind of of the illness, and so yeah. I think we'll see a lot more, a lot more recovery, a lot more improvement in the, in the patient group as we go on. Well, that's 
actually kind of a hopeful statement that you just made. And it leans right into my next question of what gives you hope and helps you from day to day? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I find that I have to treat hope like a job and, and oh. choose to show up there every day, even when I don't feel like it or even when life feels really overwhelming. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think, okay, there's a perspective I have to take about hope itself. And there's also a perspective I have to take about how I'm experiencing my illness. Um, I've learned that hope has to be grounded in the moment, like in the now. So I can sometimes get sidetracked by hoping to magically get better and just never have to deal with any of this, you know, and like, <laughs> oh, is it, wouldn't it be so good if I could do this and this and this? And those days are actually my worst ones because I get so unhappy with what I'm living through because recovery is so far away from my day-to-day reality. Huh. Um, but if I can ground my sense of hope in, in acceptance of what is, you know, just radically accept that today is okay, I can think all kinds of hopeful thoughts that I know I, I'll be able to attain one way or another. So I realized that, yeah, being disabled like this is really quite difficult, but it's not actually the end of the world. Um, I have really rich relationships. I'm just as valuable as I was before. I have a purpose now, just the same as I did when I had an able body. So it, it takes the pressure off. Like I don't have to pin my worth or my quality of life on what my body can or can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe I will recover one day and I'm working towards it, but it doesn't matter like if I can't find my way there because I'm, I'm valuable regardless and my life can be valuable regardless. So I kind of really have to blend those things together in order to stay hopeful. Um, hmm. Lisa, I, I don't know how to respond to that because I'm sitting here with tears in my eyes going, wow. I, yeah. Mm. Wow. You know, I don't want to overstate that. Um, for me, it's not the only way it's not the end of the world is because I actually have access to enough in- income security to keep a roof over my head, over my family's head. Okay. And I have a community of people who recognize their responsibility to include me and my disability in their way of life, you know? Right. So. Right. Yeah, in fact, my family and friends really seem to take joy in including me, and I, I, it's priceless to have that, and it's also necessary. Um, and these are real needs, like those socioeconomic needs that a lot of people in my situation don't actually have access to, mm-hmm. and lacking access to to financial security and housing security and uh, and social security, that security in a community actually can make disability the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So it gets, and it gets a lot worse for folks who also have to cope with racism, homophobia, or, you know, other forms of oppression on top of yeah. their health needs. So I, I, I say that with a lot of awareness of, of what I have that makes me able to say being disabled isn't the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So I just want, mm-hmm. like, Thank you for saying that. I thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's something that we all we that's a job for all of us collectively. Yeah. To create a society where everybody can access those things regardless of their ability or regardless of their identity. Um 
Yeah. I, Lisa, I have learned so much from you in, well, as I've followed you on Instagram, I've followed your Airbnb. It's been enlightening. Mm-hmm. But it, it, just this conversation, I have, uh, when, when I started thinking about our conversation, I was like, boy, it's got to be hard. And it is. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But as I sit here and listen to you, and I can hear the smile on your voice from time to time, and um, I get a whole lot of hope from you. And um, that has been a big pleasure, just sitting here in this last little while of conversation with you. I sense a lot of hope. And uh, I know I, you have mentioned the low days. And, I'm, and I know, I'm sure there will be more, but um, I... I respect and admire the hope that you speak with this about this. Yeah, thanks. Um, I I'm not quite sure. I don't know exactly what's going to come out of my mouth right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's something about like like just normalizing normalizing tackling life challenges that way because often what happens is yeah it is hard and yeah I I it helps me that it helps me when people encourage me you know to say you know I noticed this about you and it's it's cool to see that you're you're going through this in this way and and I need that encouragement I appreciate it there's this weird thing that happens when people are are disabled that um it's almost like like um in in the chronically ill or kind of like disability community we talk about disability porn (laughs) where you know if if someone is has a a good life while being disabled it's like oh they're the most amazing person and Mm -hmm. they I can't imagine you know like Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know does does that make sense it totally does yeah and and for us in the disability world we want to say you know we're actually just living life and yeah it's hard and 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 yeah, we've learned a lot of things, but we're not. I I guess it's about breaking down, breaking down the separation between an able-bodied life and a disabled life. Mm. They're they're, um, and kind of normalizing those challenges. It's it's really easy, you know, if I was able-bodied and and, and thinking, oh, I, um, we tend to kind of other people when mm-hmm. we can't imagine how to put ourselves in their shoes or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I guess, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate the encouragement. It means a lot to me. And also disability or, you know, illness or misfortune happens to all kinds of people all the time. And, and, uh, and I guess I, I just want, I I want the skills that we need to cope with challenges like this to be normal. Like I want everyone to have them. You know, and yeah. I, we probably all do in some sense that you know, you've had difficult things happen in your life too. And you've, you've figured out how to be resilient and, and maybe I have to live in that in a deeper way because of my illness. But um, yeah, but in a sense, it's just a human experience as well. Yeah. I, I I'm getting what you're saying. My mind need to <laughs> my mind now needs to sit in it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, like yeah. I I totally understand what you just said. It's now okay. How do I approach that mm. in my own life? Right. So uh, I uh, thank you for that perspective. I that's good to hear. 
That's good to hear. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. I so appreciate this. Have you been checking your heart rate as we've been talking? Yeah, it's it's too high, I, <laughs> but I, that's I, okay. I I was prepared for that. <laughs> okay, I kind of I kind of wondered. So, because um, we've you've shared a lot, you've shared a lot in our conversation, and so it's time for you to have some recovery mm-hmm. from the sharing I'll of information. Really long rest and do some. Yeah. And self-care, yeah. yeah. But I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it, too, because it does help. Like, it helps with my own feelings of isolation or that, you know, like, yeah, feeling that um, I can still be connected to the outside world somehow, you know. It, right. It, it really matters. And, yeah, I appreciate the um, your thoughtfulness to think of me and contact me. And hopefully it'll help people understand it better, you know. Um, if they have anyone in their life who who's going through something similar too, yeah, I I appreciate you sharing. You know what life looks like. Um, it will be very insightful for everyone who hears this. So, thank you so much for your time, Lisa, and we we wish you well. We wish thank you well. Thank you so much, Carly. I love talking to you. I love talking to you too, Lisa. We're just <laughs> going to have to find more reasons to talk. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds great.